Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Oh, man. They asked me to come up here and speak from up here. I warn you right now, this is super dangerous for me. I can feel it already. I am accident prone, and I am not joking that I have fallen off of three platforms while preaching. And so uh, we could see miraculous things tonight, guys. It could be really, really good. Uh, What a privilege to be with you. It has been an incredible joy uh, to get to know some of you and spend some time together. Um, And let me just encourage you, like I did last night, um, Please set aside the cultural craziness of Alaska in myself, the ridiculous stories, like they're fun, they're goofing off, I get that, but we're here for Jesus. And so if you walk away from this weekend and you're like, hey, that crazy turkey guy, he was nuts, you missed it, right? You missed it because Jesus is trying to speak to you, he's trying to engage with you and interact with you. So my prayer has been all afternoon, Lord, please remove anything of me from this equation so that it will not be a distraction for you, what God wants to do in your life. You with me? Um, I do want to do a couple of things. Uh, First of all, I want to introduce, I got to believe, is the youngest Kyalfin in the world. I think I got a picture of her up here. Come on. She was born this afternoon, right? so one of our staff couples uh, in Anchorage is their first little one. Caitlin is her name, and we are super stoked. She's healthy and good, and mom is healthy and good. And so I just want you guys to hear this. This is kind of like commercial 101. Number one, we'll have lots of them tonight. But uh, number one, you are a part of something so much bigger than your local campus, right? This is literally your niece, like, I'm Uncle Paul with our community up in Alaska. I've got like 26 Chi Alpha kids running around all the time, and I love being Uncle Paul. It's way better than being Dad, right? They get to go home, and I get to sleep. But you get to be a part of this. You have spiritual DNA, connections, relationships that are making disciples literally all around the world. Do you understand that? nearly 50% of all of our world missionaries were Chi Alpha students. Were you sitting in these chairs allowing the Lord to speak to you and then learning to say yes? You have brothers and sisters at universities all over this country and it is super dope. And so you guys should love that idea. I thought I'd introduce you to her. I'm celebrating it myself. And then I wanted to hopefully try to make you a little bit of jealous, a little bit of jealous, a little jealous of where I get to live up in Alaska. And so I'm going to preface this. We're going to watch like a one minute video clip. I took this on a boat in the ocean with some of our Chi Alpha team and one of our small group leaders. And we were fishing for a fish that is referred to as king salmon. It's the largest species of salmon. And we had an encounter with what is known as an orca. And so you will get to see a little bit of the joy that we get to have on a regular basis. 
I told you I felt He's him. like, check it out. I, I got a free lunch. <laughs> that was pretty cool, right? That was a 40-pound fish that that orca just kind of went, ooh, that was a good chicken nugget. It was pretty dope. Like, I got to be honest, we live the craziest, wildest place on the world. It's just adventure after adventure. And the reason I showed that to you is because I wanted to put an expectation in your life that if you ever get the chance to visit Alaska, uh, these things happen all the time, right? Um, that around every bush in the wilderness, there is a giant bear that is ready to devour you, right? That there's moose and caribou running around, and, and you're just going to have the most epic moment in your life if you get to visit this state. And then I will actually tell you that that's a complete lie, and most likely you won't see any animals. It's a giant wilderness, and it's incredibly beautiful, but that is one of the probably top 20 moments in nearly 10 years, of existing in this state. And the reason I wanted to kind of set you up with this concept of expectation is because I believe that tonight what we're supposed to talk about and deal with is godly expectations. Last night we dealt with what I would believe would be the heart or the motive of our lives, the desire to want to walk closely with Jesus, to close the distance, to encounter him. And tonight I wanna mess with your mind a little bit. I want to move from the heart to the head, and I want you to begin to look at life with what I would refer to as godly expectations, godly expectations. And so we're going to turn to a a story in the Old Testament, and this is commercial number two. If you have not read the Bible, you should. It's an absolutely amazing book, right? It's more than just a book. Like, this is way better than the Lord of the Rings. Like, I promise you. And there's so much in it. In fact, if you want like a guidebook for every part of life, this has an answer to it because this is God's story about how we can love him and love each other, right? We talked about that a little bit last night. And we're going to read in the Old Testament. Now, a lot of people are like, the Old Testament. The Old Testament is amazing. And I love it because there's so many good stories. And the Lord speaks to me through story. Like, I just love story. And when you read the Old Testament stories, if you're willing to pause and say, Lord, what do you want to speak to me out of this this particular scripture, I believe he will reveal things to you. I believe he will open up his word and some of these stories to some deeper truths. And so we're going to go to 2 Kings, and we're going to begin reading in chapter 4 in just a second. 2 Kings chapter 4 verses 1 to 7. I'm going to give you the, set the context in the background, and then we'll get going. So we are entering scripture in the prophetic period. Basically, there are these guys named the prophets. It is their job to be the conscience of the people of Israel. When they get out of line, their job is to say, hey, knock it off. Stop doing that. Stop worshiping other gods. Stop behaving this way. And the prophets are holding the people of Israel closer to what God desires for them. Now, there are a lot of prophets, but some of the most famous ones are found in the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. One of two of my favorite guys are Elijah and Elisha. So Elijah comes before Elisha. The way that you remember this is that J comes before S, right? And so some of you are like, what? Yes, I can remember that. So J before S, Elijah to Elisha. And in this story, we're going to pick up with the prophet Elisha. 
there's a, a widow and two kids, and Elisha is essentially the disciple or mentored by a prophet named Elijah. Now, in this story, Elijah has recently been sucked up to heaven in a whirlwind of chariot of fire, like spectacular. Disney and Hollywood cannot depict what is going on in this moment, right? In fact, in the Bible, there's only two guys that the Bible reports did not die. Enoch, who walked with God until God took him to heaven because God just liked hanging out with Enoch and he just disappeared. And then there's this guy, Elijah, who God sends a chariot of fire down and grabs him. And Elisha, his understudy, is with him. And because he's with him, he is given a double portion of the Spirit of God, a double portion of the power a double portion of the presence of God in his life because he continued to be faithful in that. And we're not going to get into that on super detail, but this is now picking up a story with this guy named Elisha after he's been the main prophet in Israel for a short period of time. Are you guys with me? You know where we're at? You guys got enough background? Okay. We're going to read 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. And what I believe that we're going to do tonight is we're going to be able to grab four simple lessons from this story that I believe will help us understand how to live with godly expectations in our lives. Four lessons from this story that'll help us have godly expectations. Chapter four, verse one says, now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing and she came and told the man of God. And he said, go sell the oil, pay your debts. You and your sons can live on the rest. All right, a little bit more context is this guy who is basically, what do they refer to him as? a son of the prophets, right? In the school of prophets. And so we have these characters, Elisha the prophet, we have the widow, we have the two kids, and we also have the husband who's passed away, and he is in the school of prophets. This is like a CMIT. You guys know what I'm talking about? So we've got prophet number one, we've got like a director of your Chi Alpha, and then you've got prophet number two, Elisha, who's kind of like your number two guy. When if you're Chi Alpha guy gets sucked up, your director gets sucked up into heaven, he takes over or she takes over, right? Some of you are praying, Lord, let them get sucked up into heaven, right? No, I'm just kidding. And so that's kind of the process. And then you have what we would refer to as the understudies, the CMITs, the, the people that are in the school of becoming a Chi Alpha director. And this guy is in that community. He's a CMIT in the school of prophets. And I know that he was at a private school because of his incredible debt that he then had to leverage his children into slavery, right? 
Some of you are like, oh, I get it. That's right, yeah. I'm, I'm there. We're not a private school in Fairbanks. We are barely making it as a state school. But moving on. All right. So we have this scene that has been set, and all of a sudden, you have this woman who's beginning to cry out to the prophet. Now, in this time in history, this would have been an unusual circumstance where a woman, again, time in history, culture, context, a woman basically is seeing this man of God, this prophet, walking by, and she begins to basically scream and cry out. Now, notice she says essentially this, your servant, my husband, is dead. You know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor who has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha responds and said to her, what shall I do for you? Now, there's no question in there, but the understanding, the implication is if that if a woman in this position is crying out across the courtyard to get the prophet's attention, there is a desire for, this, for the prophet to do something about their situation. And so this brings us to our first lesson regarding expectation. Simply this, that our expectation is tied to what we have seen and heard. Hear me in this. Our expectation is tied to what we have seen and heard. Why is this widow reaching out to the prophet and we don't hear about this happening with other widows whose husbands were not in the school of prophets? It's because she was married to a man who had seen miracle upon miracle during Elisha's and Elijah's life. So just a few of them might be an example would be that for three and a half years, Elijah stopped it from raining. Then he chose to be fed by wild ravens and he raised from the dead a widow's son. He called fire from heaven, which consumed an altar. Then after three and a half years, he decided it was time to rain. Then he called heaven, fire from heaven to consume two regiments of soldiers that were trying to take him into prison, stinks for them. Then he parted a river and was able to walk through on dry ground. He got caught up into heaven in a whirlwind. He healed poisonous waters. And then there's one of my favorite, which I call the Alaska curse, where Elisha called two bears out of the wilderness to eat some disrespectful teenagers. Right? The reason she's crying out to the prophet is because she has seen and heard about what God can do. She understands that God can have an impact in her situation in her life. So that brings us to this question of what do we expect? Do we expect a distant God, a powerless God, an impotent God, an impersonal God? Is that what we've seen and heard? Have we seen a God that, we, that happens on a religious situation on Sundays? We go through our routine, we, do's our do, or we do our do's and don'ts, and we hope that the guy with the gray beard and his stick doesn't whack us on the head and cause our lives to be misery. Is that our expectation of God? When you read your Bible, though, that's not what we see. We see a God that is powerful and engaged and active in the lives of humanity. You see, this has personal implications, you jump into the New Testament with John, in John chapter 14, 12, Jesus tells his disciples, truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. They will do even greater things than the things that I've done because I'm going to the Father. So hold up. Things, our expectations should be tied to the things that we've seen and heard. We're reading scripture and the miracles and the power and the move of God in here. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks at his 12 disciples and says, you've seen me do a handful of things over the last three years. 
And I, I just want to let you know that you can do everything that I've done and even a little bit more. So he turns water to wine. He heals the sick and the leprous. He gives the blind sight. He causes the dead to be raised. He heals the paralyzed. They walk. He calms stores. He walks on water. He feeds 5,000 with five loaves, two fish. He delivers demons. And the list goes on and on. And he's creating an expectation in the lives of the disciples that they can do the same thing. If you go to Acts, the last thing that Jesus is recorded to talk to his disciples and tell them in verses one and four, he says this, he says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But in verse eight it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and in the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Guys, I still remember vividly, it's now more than 30 years ago, having a spiritual mentor pull me aside as a very young teenager and look at me and say, Paul, every deep relationship and encounter with God in the Bible Every miracle, every blessing, every encounter that you read about is available for you. It's available for your life. And all of a sudden, my expectation about what God could be and do in my life began to totally shift from, from having this, I'm an outsider, to wait a second, I'm a, I'm a child, I'm a son of God, I'm an insider. And the way that he talked to Moses, the way that he engaged with Elijah and Elisha, the way that he hung out with his disciples, the way that he moved on this earth can be part of my life and part of my existence. It's got corporate implications as well. This isn't just about you personally, but think about the expectations we have for our community. You read just a few minutes later, the power of God shows up. They're filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The first sermon is preached, and 3,000 people come to know God. Do we have the kind of expectation that we've heard and seen about that our lives will have that kind of implication in the world in which we live? I joke with my Chi Alpha, I know what the key to happiness, do you guys know what the key to happiness is? It's lowered expectations. <laughs> Some of you are like, thank you, Jesus. Yeah, lowered expectations means you won't be disappointed, but that's not what God's about. In Mark 10, 46 to 51, Jesus asked the blind man this simple question, what do you want me to do? The widow cries out and says, I need help. And Elisha looks at her and says, what do you want me to do? Can I tell you tonight that you can cry out and you can look to Jesus and you can say, I need help, I need healing, I need deliverance, I need power, I need authority, I need strength. And he looks down and says, what do you want me to do? It's all available to you. All you have to do is chase after me. When I was a young man, I was handed a book called Through Gates of Splendor. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of that book. Some of you, yeah, there you go. Um, it's phenomenal. I have recommended it a handful of times to people here. 
um, already saying, hey, if you're going to start reading about missions and what God can do, this is a great place to start. And in, when I read that book, my imagination began to go wild. I was 13 or 14 about the power and the move of Jesus. And what, essentially what happened then uh, was when I was 16, I went on my first mission trip. So two or three years starting to dream about what God could do and how we, I could invest my life for the kingdom. And I went to the nation of El Salvador. And Super, super excited, um, went there, and we were doing two, we were, had two tasks. We were building a church. Actually, we were digging the foundation for a prayer chapel. And then the second half, we were getting on a big yellow bus, and we were traveling from rural villages, and we were basically doing uh, outreach and witnessing and uh, disc skits and different things in these places. And so we dug our holes in the ground for the foundation, and we got on a big yellow bus, and we started to bounce around the country, and we would roll in, and we would kind of go through the ministry things, and we were helping the locals plant and establish churches and bring people into their community. And we rolled into this particular church. We had an evening service, and then we were sleeping on the floor. It was a dirt floor of a concrete uh, church, basically concrete walls, holes in the wall, no doors, no windows, tin roof, and it was hot. I grew up in the Michigan-Detroit area, and I was not used to the heat, and so being a, what I would consider a wise human being, I chose the space next to the open door. And so we're laying on the dirt floor. I roll my mat out. I throw my bag underneath my head. No pillows, just my bag. I'm sleeping there. And about two o'clock in the morning, I wake up with this weird sensation that there are things crawling on me. And then I realized that there were really things crawling on me. And so I started to, you know, do this, and I heard them scatter across the room. Not super excited about this moment, but I tried to go back to sleep. I rolled over, and I felt this funny feeling in my ear. It didn't dawn on me at first that perhaps one of those creepy crawlers had found its way into the hole in my head. Instead, I jammed my finger, feeling like it was like, like an ear that had, was trying to drain or pressurized. And then after a second, I realized this was like nothing I had experienced before. The immediate thought was, I've got a spider in my head and I'm going to die. And so I rolled over, the team leader was laying next to me, and I remember shaking them and saying, hey, I think something has crawled into my ear. He woke up, he looked at me with a dazed eye, he said, go back to sleep, we'll deal with it in the morning. I lifted him off the ground, said no, <laughs> there is something in my head. So we went and got the local pastor, got a flashlight, he looks in my ear and whatever is in my head does not like the daylight and it goes deeper. And now it is not, there might be something in my head, I can feel it scurrying around. So we get a syringe and we fill it with water. We're trying to flush it out. Whatever is happening is making it angry. And I am now involuntarily crying from the pain of this creature that is now up against my eardrum, scratching and clawing and trying to get into my head. 
The decision is, is that we need to go to the local doctor, but we are in Nowheresville in El Salvador. So we get on the big yellow bus, bounce through the jungle, and I'm not kidding, not exaggerating. I remember the headlights pulling up on a legit grass hut. The local doctor comes out and his hair looks like it hasn't been washed in three years. He has nothing on but boxers and he's scratching things that a doctor should not scratch. And as we get there, the translation is going back and forth in Spanish, and, and I, I'm trying to understand that he pulls out this doctor bag, it's leather, it's like from the 1940s, he's got an otoscope, a stethoscope that's rusty, he pulls out the otoscope, and he looks inside my ear, and this is what I hear, a word that I recognized, la cuca racha, a cockroach had crawled into my head and was stuck. Through the interpretation, he looks at me and he says, there's good news and bad news. The good news is I can kill this bug. The bad news is, is you must have like shoved it up against your eardrum. I'm scared to try to remove it. I'll, I'll damage your hearing. You need to go back to the capital city of San Salvador to have it removed. And I said, please God, kill the bug. And so no lie, he gets out a black cauldron pot like a witch's pot. And he starts an open fire and he goes to a rusty metal cabinet, opens it up and grabs vials of who knows what and starts pouring in and he is stirring the pot. I'm 16 years old going, dear God, what is happening in this moment? He takes a wooden ladle with black boiling tar and he pours it into my ear. It burns the ear, burns the inside of the ear, but whatever that tar is, it kills the buck. And I am overjoyed. The problem that I have now, though, is that my equilibrium is no longer good. And so I am stumbling around. I am nauseous beyond belief. I'm vomiting. We're bouncing back to the church to where the rest of the team is. They radioed ahead. I get off the bus, and my friends are so compassionate. They're singing La Cucaracha when I get off the bus, right? You gotta love college students. Like, this is so good. So I get off the bus, and the missionary shows up. I love missionaries. He looks at me, and he goes, Paul, this is crazy. And I said, I know. And he goes, we can go back to San Salvador. They have medical, great medical care in the capital city. We can get this bug removed. This is wild. We, we should go do that. And I'm going, yes, we should. And then he said this word, and it's a horrible word, or. He goes, or, Paul, we can continue on one more day. You see, your team is supposed to go to this village that we've never been able to reach before. We, there's no Christian work, and, and your team was supposed to help us start a work in this community. And at 16, he looks at me, and he says, but the choice is yours. We'll do what you want to do. Not fair, right? And I looked at him as a kid who was trying to chase after Jesus with all of my heart, my mind went back to that book, Through Gates of Splendor. And that's a story about a young man, actually a few young men, who ended up giving their lives, dying for the sake of cross, the cross. And I remember thinking about that, and I remember going, well, if I, can, if I can just suck it up for another day, day and a half, I believe that this actually might have an eternal impact, an eternal difference. 
And so we bounced around for another 12 or so hours, landed in this village. We did our outreach, spent the night there, did the outreach one more time. And I remember uh, laying on that green seat of a school bus as they did puppets and they did their out, the, the, the clowns and the skits and the conversations. And then all of a sudden, the pastor that comes with us came up and started to give the altar call. And students, this is part of the reason why I'm such a maniac for Jesus is because I remember climbing up out of that green seat of an old 1970s school bus, looking out of the cracked window and seeing men and women, old and young, grandparents and baby children raising their hands to accept Jesus as their savior. And all of a sudden, I began to understand what God could do with the life that was yielded and willing to suffer and make a little bit of sacrifice, that the expectation for Jesus to do something in this world is not that we will have a perfect, suffering-free life, but instead that we would be willing to lay it down for the sake of the kingdom and that he would go with us. Listen, he would go with us along every step of the way. This woman's expectations was that God was going to do something about her situation. What are your expectations for God? The second lesson that I want us to look at tonight is simply this, that God requires participation in our expectation. God requires participation in our expectation. If you look in verse two, Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me what you have in the house. And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And then he said, go outside. You guys know the rest of the story. We'll get to it in a minute. Now, we, I just wanna touch base and give you an idea of the significance of oil in the Old Testament. First of all, oil in scripture represents the presence and the power of God. It was connected to the anointing of kings and the giving of the Holy Spirit. There is definitely a deeper significance to what is going on here. This expectation that the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives is connected in this text. But it was incredibly precious. It was something of incredible value. Like if you do some research, you can try to get an understanding of the value of what we believe was perhaps less than a gallon of oil. The average annual salary for a day laborer was about 200 shekels. Today, that's an average McDonald's salary of what, 10 or 12 bucks, which equates to about 20 grand a year. And our records indicate that a large container, about five gallons of oil, could cost as much as 100 shekels or essentially a half year's wage or the equivalent of $10,000. So the idea that she had an incredible debt because she went to, her husband went to a private school was likely in the $100,000 range. It was literally the, the lives of her children were at stake and all she had was likely the skim bottom of a little bit of oil which is essential for her life to provide food for her family and God doesn't say, I'm gonna take care of it for you. He says, I want you to be invested in what God is going to do in your life. It doesn't matter how much you have, you have to give it all. 
Do you guys understand? All I have is a little bit of oil. Well, give it. Bring it. It's mine. It belongs to me. If you want me to intervene on your behalf, you have to be willing to lay it at his feet. God has already given the beginnings of a miracle. The example of what we see in Scripture is simply this, that God magnifies and multiplies our humanity with his power and his presence. Matthew 15, 34, Jesus desires to feed 5,000 people and he asks how many loaves and how many fish. He desires to use what we have to meet the needs in our lives. God has already begun to give the beginnings of a miracle in your life. You may not recognize it. A friend of mine recently was convicted. This might be you. We were talking about this concept and they came to me later and they said, I'm convicted because I come to God with not a lot of expectation and just that in that I just will take whatever God wants to give me. And he said, I feel like God is saying, that's it? That's all you want? You don't want to fight or wrestle or desire more for your life? You see, our participation with God means that if you want to be holy, you have to discipline your life, but God will give you the power, as he tells in Scripture, to be free from sin. You guys do understand that Scripture says that you're set free so that you, for the sake of freedom. We're not set free so that we can become slaves again. If you want to be a witness at your school, if you want to tell other people about Jesus, you have to step out of your fear and shame and take a risk. And the Bible says the Lord, the Lord will, will give you the power and the authority, but he'll put the words in your mouth of what to say. If you want to activate your spiritual gifts, you need to spend time in prayer, reading God's word, seeking his faith. You want to heal the sick, prophesy, speak in tongues, bless the community with words of knowledge. You must step into those gifts. You are required to participate in them. I come, was at dinner, I had a chance to share a little bit of my story. Are you guys still with me? Okay, 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 good. You guys are quiet sometimes, and that's concerning. Um, I share a little bit of my background. Um, I'm, I guess, second-generation Christian. Um, my grandparents were the first people in our community, my family, to come to know Jesus. And uh, they came to know Jesus through a miraculous moment. My uncle was miraculously healed from a disease that he was going to die at, like, age 7 or 8. He's, like, 72 or 73, and he's doing good. And so at that moment, my grandfather said, that's good enough for me, we're with Jesus, period. And it's been that way our whole lives. But I grew up hearing these kind of stories, and one of the, the famous stories of our family my dad loves to tell is about the well. Uh, see, he grew up in a real small town in southern Michigan on the, the border of Ohio, and in their community, they didn't have like running water outside of the well that they had in their yard. The problem was is that in August every year, the well wasn't deep enough and the heat would come and essentially the well would run dry when the water table was low enough. And so he would gripe and complain about having to go out and use the outhouse and fill the bathtub with water and take baths in it over and over and over again. Like it was one of those miserable experiences, but my grandparents were really poor people. 
Like my, my grandfather was a bus driver. My, my grandmother kind of did odd things and sold and made quilts and just, just kind of humble, simple people. And for years, they scraped together the money that they had to try to accomplish this one simple task on the farm that they lived on to, to dig the well deeper. And so as my dad tells his story, there's this moment where they are rejoicing and they are thrilled and they're so excited because they have raised enough money to have their well dug deeper. And then a missionary shows up at church on a Sunday night. And guess what that missionary's there to do? He's there raising money for wells in Africa. And my dad tells this story, he goes, he knew as soon as this missionary started to talk that their well was essentially gone. And when the missionary put the number on the screen about how much it would cost to dig two wells in Africa, it was the same amount to dig one well in their backyard that his grandfather was gonna give away their well. And my dad was super angry and super upset. But my grandfather reached into his checkbook, wrote the check, slid it into the offering, and gave away the family's well. Interestingly, that was like March or April, and come that first August, the well did not run dry. And then the next year rolled around, and the well did not run dry. And the year after that, and the year after that, and my cousin now owns that property, and it has been over 60 years. That well has never been dug deeper, and that well has never run dry. You see, you can't argue with me and tell me that when you bring your needs to Jesus, that he won't meet them. My life, my identity, my history, my, my character has been defined by this simple understanding that God can do what he says he does in this book. I've seen it with my eyes. I've lived it with my life. But we can't stand on the back row and be spectators. You have to participate in the miracles and the authority and the power of what God wants to do in your life. The third lesson that we need to address out of this little story is that our expectation should create motion. Just imagine with me. Some of you are like, yeah, let's go. Uh, her expectation led her to go beg and borrow and steal vessels. I put the steel in there, but it's probably what happened. All right. Vessels had to be specific. They had to hold oil. The prophet tells her not to grab just a few. They had to be empty, right? And they had to be cleaned of cobwebs and dirt and the things that would defile the oil because the oil would be eventually sold. There's some spiritual principles here. Think about this. The freedom from slavery was the goal. The oil was not the goal. The oil was the process for the freedom of the goal. God's manifestation of power in your life is not the goal. The goal is Jesus. The goal is walking so close to him, to engaging and being connected to him, that his power in his life flows through you. Not that you can do magic tricks on the weekend. We need to desire the giver not the gift. The amount of work that we are willing to invest is connected directly to our expectation of a miracle. 
So this widow's expectation that God was going to do something was directly connected to how many vessels she was willing to go gather. She didn't know what was going to happen. The prophet said, go get some vessels. He said, don't get a few. Her expectation of what God was going to do was connected to her belief that God was going to meet her need. The next one is, is that the spiritual principle is that you have to clean these vessels. Listen to this, guys. Inward preparation always happens before outward experience. Inward preparation always happens before outward experience. If you want more of Jesus, if you were at the sessions today and you were learning about the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I hope at some point they told you that the Holy Spirit cannot be poured into a vessel that is filled with all sorts of other stuff. And I'm not just talking about sin. I'm talking about potentially good things. But if your life is filled to the brim with media and activities and degrees and future, and I'm not saying though any of those are bad things. How in the world does the power of God get poured into that if the vessel is not empty and clean? Our expectations are not met alone. I love this. Listen to this. The expectation that creates motion in the life of this woman to get moving involved other people in the expectation of God doing something. Her sons not only experienced new freedom, but they participated in their freedom. And their neighbors, who got their vessels stolen, have a new understanding of what God wants to do in their life. I um, hold the distinction, I don't know if it's still true or not, I know it was a couple years ago, um, of being the oldest CMIT in Kyle history. You're like, what, what? That's right, I was 35, four kids, uh, missionary, world uh, pastor of a local church, and God called us to Chi Alpha, and I hung out at Sam Houston State and did the CMIT. Some of you love Sam Houston. And part of that was because Chi Alpha had been such a big part and a piece of our DNA of discovering discipleship. It took me 35 years to understand some of the principles that you guys are learning as sophomores at your university in your LTC community. And as we sat there, I began to look around at this amazing Chi Alpha that God was flourishing and there's hundreds of small group leaders and the community is large and they're sending people around the world. And I started to ask some simple questions. Some questions like, how does this happen? And Eli, the director, pulled me aside, and Jason Bell, and Eli Stewart, and I'm talking to those guys, and I'm trying to understand how this happened in this community and how it was changing the world. And it started off with a young man, I'm trying to look for his name, I think it's Sam, there it is, Simeon Hughes. You see, they were at an event just like this. I believe it was an actual SALT event. And they started to ask the question of how do we impact and, uh, impact and touch the lives of our campus? I think at that time, their community was a little less than 200 people. There was about 35, 40 small group leaders. And the guys went off into one room and the girls went off into another. And they ended up making this commitment and this decision that 
the next school year, they would move back on campus in order to be able to make disciples on their campus instead of moving off. And the linchpin in this story is this young man named Simeon Hughes because he had just rented an apartment and furnished the apartment and he had everything invested into this situation. And when Jason tells his story, he, he basically describes that there's 30 people in this room and he casts this vision of what some of the guys had brought forward about doing that. And he says, all right, so who's going to do it? And no one raised their hand. No one jumped in. No one said, this is what I want to do. And then there's this guy, Simeon Hughes, who no one has heard about before or since. Seriously. And he says, I'll do it. I'll go. I'll put motion to the expectation that through my participation in this moment, God is going to do something. The story doesn't work out as good as you think it was. The first semester, everybody moved back into the dorms. It was called King Hall. Nothing happened. Some of you actually live there probably. Nothing happened because they just thought moving in was going to be good enough. And so they were at this moment, the year later, realizing that they'd invested their life, but, but there wasn't any new disciples, there wasn't any change in the lives of the people around them, and so they went back to this simple thing called prayer, and their decision was is that they moved in, and instead of like pursuing and chasing and putting up with this big strategy, they just decided that they were going to open their doors on their hall in their dorm, and they were going to welcome people to come and talk to them. And that was the genesis of a discipleship movement. What culminated from a couple hundred college kids, not organized and strategically put together by Chi Alpha pastors or professionals, but for college students, began a movement that would literally shake our movement and the world. So let me just throw at you some of the places that Sam Houston Chi Alpha, not an organization, students have gone around the world. So it started at the University of Sam. They sent their first pioneers to a campus at the University of Houston. Then it was Corpus Christi. Then it was Colorado State. Then it was UTSA. After that, they sent people to a town called Kingsville, New Mexico State, Texas A&M, some people here in Boston and in Manhattan, to New York, to West Virginia, to UAF to Alaska, to Lubbock, to Arizona State, and the list goes on. But that's not all because each of those campuses now sends people out to go and love other universities, and that's not all because they've sent missionaries around the world, and they're all over overseas, and they're raising up young men and women who are being sent out again and again and again. And what started out as a bunch of disenfranchised, dissatisfied, college small group leaders who sat in a room at assault and said, we're not satisfied and we have a bigger expectation about what God could do, literally has rocked the world and some of you are here because of it. I am here because of a no-name college kid who's no one heard of on either side of history said, I'll sell my furniture and move back into the dorms. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that you can change the world from your campus? Or are you just going through the... 
I hate it when I get told this, yeah, you run a college youth group. I'm like, no, no. I'm raising up men and women to take over the world. Total world domination. Like, that's what I want. All right, we got to move on. I'm, I'm way over time. All right, all right, all right, all right. Are you guys with me? Am I? I come on. I hope that Jesus is inspiring you. I hope that he's inspiring you. This afternoon, some little college student, young lady, no disrespect, she looks at me and says, you're a wild man. And I said, that is like the best compliment I could be given. The last lesson that we can learn, guys, from this mother who loved her kids so much, who expected God to do so much, is that our expectation is simply too small for God. Her expectation was too small. She was not level, ready for the level of God's miraculous move. I want you to see and recognize that her life was limited by the number of jars she was willing to empty and bring to that moment. Hear this. The Bible says very simply, seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added to you. Most of us have heard that all of our lives and it simply means this. Make everything about God and then he will bring everything back into your life in the proper order and perspective so that you will have the most beautiful existence in this world and in eternity. There is no job, no finances, no opportunity, no family, no popularity, nothing that can compare with what God has in store for you. Do not limit what God wants to do because you're being stingy with the vessel of your life. Our expectation is too small. And it should be overflowing. I want the worship team to come. I was told before service that we're going to have the opportunity for extended worship now. Shorter worship set up front, which I'm super excited about. Jesus, be with us. Guide us, Lord God. Guide us, Lord Jesus. I want you to engage your minds. Everybody close your eyes with me. I want you to engage your imagination. 
I want you to start dreaming about what life can look like surrendered to the Lord. Dream about those expectations. Take what you have seen and heard. Take the stories of Scripture, the testimonies, the miracles. Take the New Testament, the book of Acts, where the power of the Holy Spirit fell upon those that sought the presence and the power of God who waited in His presence. And just allow yourself to start to dream. Do you have an imagination for Jesus? I think one of the greatest enemies, one of the greatest tricks the enemy has done in our generation, in my life and in yours, is that he has filled every moment with media and devices and information. And it's had a lot of consequences. It's created anxiety and depression and comparing and all of those things. But I think the greatest tragedy is we no longer dream about what Jesus can do in our lives. Jesus. I believe that in this room there are men and women who God wants to use in miraculous healings. I believe that in this room, there are men and women who, if you will but ask, he will respond, what do you want from me? And he will fill your life with the power and the presence and the spirit of God in a way that you've never imagined. I believe that there are men and women who are looking around going, man, I wish Chi Alpha would be different. I wish that someone would do something about that sound problem in worship. I wish that someone would do a small group like this. And, and the Lord is saying that if you want to see that expectation become a reality, why don't you join and involve yourself and participate in your own expectation? I'm going to open up these altars and I'm just going to make a simple plea I'm going to give an explanation. My grandfather, who's that Mennonite who had his son get healed and then gave away a well. When I was a young man, he used to look at me and he said, Paul, I'd like to sit in the back of church, not go to the altars. And he'd look at me and he said, Paul, the altar is where you forge the foundation of your relationship with God. Like, I don't need to go up there to talk to Jesus. And he'd look at me and he goes, there's something that happens in your heart when your feet start moving. Something happens in your heart when you set aside your pride and your respect and your dignity and you come and find Jesus at the altar. The request or the opportunity is simply this. If you want to come and seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to ask that there be Chi Alpha staff and pastors be over here. Those that feel comfortable praying and asking for students are praying for them to receive the baptism of the Spirit. I know tonight we didn't talk about it, but I know there was a session about it, and I want to create an opportunity for us to seek the baptism. And what you all you need to know is that it's in the Bible. <laughs> the Bible says it's a good gift. 
God doesn't give bad gifts, it's a good gift. And if you seek the Lord, the Lord gives good gifts. And so participate in that. And simply over here, I would open up the altar for those that want to have a vision for their campus and how they can see the kingdom of God come in their small group, in their community, and in the future of their lives. And let me encourage you that everyone in this room now has an opportunity to simply grow their expectation and begin to chase after that with Jesus for the next few moments. If you want to come for prayer for healing, if you want to come for prayer for anything else, there's going to be pastors, myself, other people will be here. Your small group leader can pray for you. And this can be a space where we seek the face of the Lord. But when we walk out of here tonight, my prayer is that we would be a people filled with great expectation. And we walk out of here tomorrow, we go back to our campuses. Our campuses are different because we are a people filled with great expectation and great power and an understanding of participation in that so that our world is different. Jesus, we love you. God, we ask right now that you would invade this space. Lord, we ask for young men and women that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. God, we ask that young men and women would be healed of physical and emotional and spiritual wounds and, and, and ailments, Lord Jesus. And God, I pray right now that we will see the birth of vision and great expectation of what you can do in and through our lives. In your precious name, amen. Guys, why don't you stand? They're going to lead us in worship. Come to the altars. Spend time with Jesus tonight. So grateful. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com. 